the habit in surgery during the surgical rotation was after the surgery, the surgeons and the medical students and the residents would all adjourn to a place to talk over what happened and to answer questions. Well, that place that they gathered was usually the men's dressing room. As we started getting women in, it's like really two of the women in our class walked right into the men's dressing room. And then there was this huge realization among the surgery faculty at how ridiculous that was of them to do this. From Nevada Today, this is Unpacked, backstories of people from the University of Nevada Reno community, their journey, their passions, and their impact. I'm David Stipik with Marketing Communications, and on today's show, she's among Nevada's women of achievement, an advocate for immunizations, and a protector of the public's health. And she may have even been your pediatrician. A visit with Trudy Larson, MD. Any list of innovative leaders and pioneers in Nevada medicine would not be complete without a familiar name to many of us, Trudy Larson, MD. Today, she serves as Dean of the University School of Community Health Sciences, and her team plays a vital role in our region's battle with the pandemic. Earlier this year, Nevada Governor Steve Sisolak named Dr. Larson to his elite panel of medical advisors for COVID-19. For a woman entering the male-dominated field of medicine in the 1960s and 70s, it's been a winding journey of perseverance and possibilities. Today, Trudy Larson, MD, and the world of public health. So, you know, public health has to do with everything that touches a person. It has to do with the, the people who you're around, your job, your education, your community, your environment, your food, your water. That's all about public health. It's all about the, the conditions in which you live and how those conditions keep you healthy. So public health is huge. It's hugely interdisciplinary. Public health does their work through program development. So smoking cessation campaigns, helmet campaigns, those are all programs and, and immunization programs. Those are programs and policy. That's the other piece where public health informs policy. And there's some big policy decisions that have been made around public health. One of them, of course, is our no smoking uh, law that was huge when it was passed, um, which has benefited you know, millions of people in terms of their health. All the requirements from the EPA that reduce pollution, that improve our water, those are all public health policy pieces. It's so broad. So we work on the social determinants of health, as well as those more concrete things in, in the public. And we work on, at population levels. So this is not on a personal level. Public health advocates have identified uh, buildings that have mold issues, and they have effectively gotten lawyers involved to sue landlords to get rid of the mold. And suddenly the health of all those people living in that building improves. And as I've heard you talk about public health in the past, uh, really it also includes things like emotional health, economics, anything that affects a person's health, their safety, their well-being, a lot of quality of life type of stuff. Yeah, their ability to lead a healthy life. And yeah, so we are concerned about behavioral health and all the impacts of that. And the, you know, the economics and poverty as a big driver of health. So let's talk about COVID. What has COVID really amplified? It has shown us health disparities in a glaring light. Huge. 
that uh, people of color do not have access and they have poor outcomes. This has been said for years and years and years. Same with systemic racism. That's very much a public health issue. Huge because of our work in health disparities and finding policies that continue to impact people of color, women, LGBTQ plus folks that don't have a seat at the table. So COVID is a big deal. And as a person sitting in a school dedicated to public health, I, I would say that this is sort of what we live for, but I think this has been a little bit even overwhelming for those of us who understand how public health works with emerging infections. And it's a pretty scary kind of thing. So we're doing what we can in a real practical manner, training our contact tracers, helping manage them for the state. They don't have enough state people to do this kind of management. So we're helping with that by contract. And we are doing a lot of COVID education in the community free so that practitioners all over the state can hook in. And, and the topics are different. They're not about, about how you take care of these folks in the hospital. This is about mental health and COVID. And this is about how do we help our tribal communities in the COVID era? And how do we uh, care and find folks who, who really have needs that don't have voices? Um, aging. So one of our faculty members is very engaged in our senior population and helped put together the NEST program. Our students here, a lot of them are in this program as volunteers um, to contact seniors on a regular basis to provide them some socialization. COVID is just really, it has brought out the worst in us and it's brought out the best in us. And I think um, as a challenge, it's a truly a huge public health challenge. What we are trying to do our part through research, through service, through engagement. You mentioned that the University School of Community Health Sciences is doing contact tracing for the state of Nevada here in the north. That's being done by one of your programs, the Nevada Public Health Training Center, under the direction of Gerald Dermod. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. We hear that term quite a bit. I know it's part of the COVID effort, but how does contact tracing work and what exactly is it? So when somebody tests positive, they're reported to the health department by law. And the health department's responsibility is to provide a person, a contact tracer, who calls the person and says, okay, let's talk about who you've had around you for the past five days. Because what we need to do is tell them that they've been exposed to COVID. So once they know they've been exposed, they need to go get tested and then they need to quarantine. So quarantine is when you put yourself in isolation and you're not infected yet. Isolation is when you're infected. So the person who tests positive goes into isolation. So they don't expose anybody else. The contact tracer calls all of their contacts, at least they try to, and or now we're using texting, it's very interesting, to let them know they need to go get tested and then they need to go into quarantine. And then they check on them to see how they're doing. They wanna know if, if they're getting symptoms or not. They wanna know if their test is positive or not. And then they give them guidance on what to do after that. To hire all these people, our HR folks on campus bent over backwards. I've never seen anything go so fast. And it was really because of the dedication of our HR folks identifying that this was a critical service that we could provide for our community. So kudos to them. All right, so we'll get a chance to talk more about the School of Community Health Sciences as well as COVID in just a little bit as we go along. Let me go back to the beginning of your backstory. Where were you born and raised? I was born here in Reno, but I was not raised here. We lived in California 
I actually was born at St. Mary's. My mom was a second generation Nevada and I'm a third. Uh, my aunt is Velma Johnston, Wild Horse Annie. So um, I had a great upbringing with very strong women. My grandfather, who I never knew, he died way before I was born, was pretty chauvinistic and did not allow his daughters to go to college, but they were all very bright. And so uh, one of the things I grew up with is the knowledge that I would go to college. That, that was like a given. And my mother, I think, regretted that she didn't get to go, but um, she still found a lot of amazing things to do through her life. Uh, but she wanted to make sure her daughters, and there's four of us, and I'm the oldest of four girls, and then there's my brother. She wanted to make sure all of us had opportunities to make it on our own, that she didn't want us to ever be dependent on anybody, male or female. So that was the structure in which I was raised. And then I had an incredibly enlightened dad who thought his daughter should be able to do anything. Now, he's a graduate of UNR. He was in the class of 1950 in, um, in engineering, electrical engineering, when this campus was really, really small. And uh, my formative years, which is elementary school, I lived in a small town um, in Newcastle in California. We had horses, we had chickens. I mean, it was sort of idyllic. It was 650 people when we were there. My parents were raised in the Depression, and so they were savers. We just didn't have a lot of excess anything, except our college education was paid for. We always got our checkups. We had good dental care. That was their culture, their ethic moving forward is that these are the things that you provided and you saved. We were in Newcastle until um, halfway through my uh, freshman year. We moved because my dad got moved. We went to Danville in the East Bay. It was Walnut Creek and Danville and Alamo, and they're all together. So, you know, hundreds of thousands rather than hundreds. So what was the move to Danville like? Culture shock. I spent my first six months um, in my room. I would, I would be in my room, I would go to school, and I'd come back in my room. It was, it was the worst ever to, tr to uh, change schools when you're 13. I had spent, you know, seven years with people. These were my people that I knew thoroughly, my best friends, my group, you know, that are really critical in those adolescent years. And I was plucked from them to this high school, very sophisticated, you know, people were a little standoffish, very cliquish. They already had their friends with them. It was really, really hard. And, you know, ultimately, but this is like, this is a real important part of how I came to be who I am now is because I had to figure out how to make my way in this new environment at a time when it wasn't easy. It was really hard. So how did you make your way? During this period of time, when I stayed in my room most of the time, um, I got to be a real excellent student. I, I was always a, a good student, but I got to be an excellent student. Um, because that's what I did. I paid attention to my schoolwork. It was something I was comfortable with. I loved it. So for me, that was uh, a continuation and enhancement of my ability to sort of be an excellent student. It gave me focus. And, and that's something that I got noticed for. And, you know, slowly over the years, I developed new friendships. Uh, but that scholarship piece was always there. 
And I heard this years later, but it what really resonated to me is that like, you never want to shut a door. And so I volunteered, I did all sorts of things because I wanted to, but it, it helped me then when I went off to college to get scholarships and a lot of other things that made it easier for me um, as I went through higher education. So even in high school, were you starting to see some of the medical interests shaping at that point? I mean, like what were some of the subjects that you liked? I love biology, very interesting to me. And so that sort of got me interested in the, um, the biological sciences. You know, I, I was a candy striper. I don't know if you remember what that is. Candy striper worked in the hospital. It was in the sixties when I was in high school. And so I was a candy striper and although it was an interesting environment and I knew how to be nice to people, that's where I discovered nursing was not for me, but that door was open if I wanted it, you know? And so it's like, I was a good student and did a, and did difficult classes and, and just, and it kept all my doors open, but it started narrowing. So there's some pivotal things. I was a huge book reader. I was the classic bookworm. I read all the time and that continued all the way through. And one of the books that I read was about Leeuwenhoek and his um, creation of the microscope and how that opened up a new world of small animacules, as they call them. And I just thought that was so interesting. And so I thought, oh, well, maybe I should go into research. And, um, and indeed, that sort of hooked. And maybe I will be a teacher and a researcher. Um, this is interesting. I like this idea of looking through microscopes and discovering things. So what's that word you're saying? Say that again. What, what is it about the microscope? Animacules. 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 C-U-L-E-S, right at the end. You know, that, that was what led to the creation of microbiology and, you know, everything. But I was just, I, I got, I was doing biographies uh, in, my, in my teens. But these biographies provided, I think, an entree to, to looking at worlds that I didn't know anything about, but might be interesting to me. So I made my way through high school. I knew a lot of people. I was in the band. So I was a band nerd. Loved my band friends. Such fun people. What did you play? I played French horn. And were you good? Well, I was okay. Um, <laughs> I actually played, I, I started playing piano when I was eight. And so I was a lot, a lot better on piano. But um, I've always liked music. We'd sing and in groups. And, you know, so music was always sort of a, a background part of my life. My dad was a barbershopper. I don't know if you know barbershop quartet singing. My whole family sings and they all play instruments. I'm going to go on a, a little tangent here. The research that shows this correlation of math, music, and um, science is very strong. And so I believe that my interest in music, which is quite, you know, it's mathematical in many ways, particularly Bach, but it was a wonderful framework to staying connected to those really interesting arts and sciences um, that sort of contribute to each other. So yeah, we always had music. That was really important in our entire family. So as I listen to this, I'm wondering, how do you think the move from the small town and that uh, comfort zone of Newcastle to the big city of Danville and the Bay Area, uh, how do you think that shaped who you became? So I've thought about that. I have a whole bunch of these whole bunch of these experiences through my life. Things happened and, and then suddenly I had this rerouting of things. Like instead of going here, I'm just going to go here. And so I've thought about that. And I may not have been as ambitious if we had not moved. 
where I felt um, a significant reason. I wanted to be able to stand out. I could do that through my scholarly work. The teachers knew who I was. You know, I got to give a speech at graduation. So I don't think I would have developed the ambition that I did. So it was, it was very pivotal for me to do that. I hated it at the time. It was absolutely dreadful. But new experiences, new friends, new way of looking at things, new opportunities. Um, I didn't think about it that early, but later, yeah. So I believe you went to med school at UC Davis and you were in the Northern California region. What was that like in that era? I would go over to San Francisco and I'd go see the Grateful Dead and I'd go see the Jefferson Airplane and it was the late 60s. So in the early 70s, so there were, there were protests um, going to Berkeley and San Francisco, going um, where all the flower children were. Um, you know, drugs were not very interesting to me. I didn't like being out of control. But that was an era of experimentation. It was free love and peace. And I mean, what an amazing time to be able to be in college. I, I treasure that time because it was a time we learned that we had a voice you know, I was on the protest line. I sat there and we were protesting the Vietnam War. I had um, high school friends that were in the war. They came back so damaged. It was terrible. So we had causes. And so it, it was an amazing social time to go through college. So with uh, so much going on on the social side of things, uh, how is it going with your college studies? So I just took my good student habits straight into college. I was a very good college student as well. Always took too many courses and, you know, but we get to take one pass-fail course every single semester. So anyway, I took all those courses. There are a lot of sciences you might well imagine and math and chemistry and organic chemistry, etc., which I liked a lot. I love those classes, but I took the history of movies and I love Shakespeare. So I actually took an entire year, three courses of Shakespeare because I love Shakespeare. Pivotal for me was I volunteered to be on the crisis call line. On the crisis call line, we got trained on how to do de-escalation and, you know, listen. And it's a very active listening process, of course. Well, and what I discovered is I really liked that helping people. I really liked that social interaction. It was like, okay, maybe I don't want to be in a lab. Maybe I don't want to be all by myself in my lab doing my lab experiences. Maybe I want to do more with people. So that really got me interested in medicine. It was truly the, this melding of um, this great science that I so enjoyed and then seeing how that would inform my decision making around issues of health. It was pretty late in my college career when I decided I wanted to go into medicine. Now you said a few minutes ago that uh, being a candy striper in the 1960s that was what made you realize that nursing wasn't for you. So what was it about that experience that turned you off to nursing? Bedpans. <laughs> okay. Seriously. That was, that was like not for me. You know, I liked the talking. I liked the delivering the food. It was like, no. And, you know, I think um, there wasn't a really good definition of that nursing role during that period of time in the sense of independent decision making or you know that they weren't part of a team i mean that's really developed a lot more recently but it was really you know here's what you do and and you have orders and i i did not take kindly to that just saying i mean even then 
um, because this has been a theme throughout my career, there is no reason why I can't do that just because I'm female. There's like no reason. So I took the MCATs somewhat naively because I didn't study very hard. And, and then I applied to medical school. It did not hurt that there weren't a lot of women in medical school because I sort of took it on as another challenge. And it was like, okay. And I had my dad and my mom just sitting there and especially my dad. Cause I think, you know, that influence is a very powerful one. The father influence on daughters in, in, in terms of what they end up doing. And I could always hear him back here going, yep, you can do that. Just go for it. You know? So I did. And so I got into medical school and I went to Irvine and we were the biggest number of women ever admitted. We were 20% of the class. And we had a Dean who was very progressive. And in fact, he recognized that if more women didn't go into medicine, we would not have enough physicians, period. And it was very critical that women get into medicine and you know, be well-trained and move, move into practice and academics. And so we had a direct line to the dean. So remind me where we are on the timeline. What year is this now? So I went to medical school from um, 73 to 77. So we had these great friendships and at least I didn't feel that, uh, that there was a differential ever. But I have to tell you, there was some blatant discrimination going on. Um, I'll tell you a funny story because I'll, I will never forget this. This is about a systemic kind of an issue. The habit in surgery during the surgical rotation was after the surgery, the surgeons and the medical students and the residents would all adjourn to a place to talk over what happened and to answer questions and that kind of stuff. Well, that place that they gathered was usually the men's dressing room. So as we started getting women in, it's like, really? We're getting cut out of this very important um, sort of debriefing. And, and so um, two of the women in our class said, all right. And they walked right into the men's dressing room. And then there was this huge realization among the surgery faculty at how ridiculous that was of them to do this. And, and so it totally changed. Debriefing was held in a place where everybody could attend and be comfortable. And that's what happened. On rounds, when I was a student, uh, I, I would not be able to present my patient to our attending physician in favor of a male intern. And I was told that I was taking a place. I was taking a place that should have gone to a male who was going to work their career. Blatant. I look back on this horrified, but I went through it and didn't really understand until later that I actually could have spoken up and said something, but I didn't. Because um, I didn't, I wasn't empowered yet to, uh, to really recognize how wrong that was. It was really bad going through it, but I think it steeled us. We got pretty strong. That group support really helped. And so I think as we went through, we, we were able to make some big changes in the way things were done. So how'd you end up pursuing pediatrics? Interestingly, I was a very good medical student as well in terms of my grades. And folks said, why are you going into pediatrics? That's a traditional female role. Why are you doing that? You have all these grades. You could go off and be a surgeon and, you know, and an internist. Okay, now we're talking about my career and where I think 
I will want to go to work every single day. Here's what makes me happy, right? And so um, that was a time I did not take up the challenge because I said, that's, no, I don't want to be a surgeon. I don't like that culture. I don't want to do that. I, I feel best here. So I went through my, my residency, my three years. I learned a tremendous amount. We were just really starting to learn a lot about neonatal intensive care. So I learned a lot about how to care for very sick newborns. And, and I had my first hero. Her name is Christy Halstead. She was one of our uh, faculty and she was a pediatric infectious disease physician. For her, it was always about the best care of the children. So she, she modeled so much great behavior. And so she, had, she was a big influence. She was one of my very favorite attendings. So I did locum tenens. I don't know if you're familiar with that, where you go and you take over a practice for a physician so they can go on vacation. These were solo practitioners in the Central Valley of California for the most part, and they just needed to get away. And so I would come take their practices over. So I learned what it was like to be in private practice, the only pediatrician for miles in private practice. It was scary to be on my own. I had a great background and I felt very good about the care I delivered, but it allowed me an opportunity to say, ooh, maybe this is not what I really want to do. It wasn't quite right. So I said, you know, really what I want, I want to be in a group practice where I have, I get to work with people uh, as a team. So I said, okay, I'm going to apply for fellowships. And uh, my significant other was applying for fellowships as well. So we did this as a dual couple. He was going into vascular surgery and I thought, okay, why don't, why don't I do adolescent medicine? I, I like teenagers. That'll be interesting. And so we went to Arizona and interviewed there and we went to UCLA and interviewed there. And I walked in and she goes, oh, I'm so sorry, but we just filled the position. Oh. And she said, however, I know that they still have an open fellowship in pediatric infectious disease. And so I thought, yes, I could do that. Here's one of those major pivots. I walked upstairs and I talked to my second hero, Yvonne Bryson, and we just hit it off. So that's another term that we might hear a lot around the medical profession, fellowship. What exactly is that? How does it work? Fellowships train their fellows to become academic faculty. So you still do your practice, you know, you still see patients, but you learn these other skills, the research skills and the education skills. And my first month as a fellow at UCLA is when I went to Grand Rounds and heard about the young gay men in Hollywood who had pneumocystis cranial pneumonia that ultimately turned out to be AIDS. And so that's where I started my career in, in HIV AIDS before we knew a name for the virus, uh, before we had anything to treat with, that, that was it. If I had not been there, I have no clue what my career would have looked like. But that launched me. And as I understand, it wasn't too long after that that you moved to Reno. Your husband at that time uh, had some family roots here and, and you also had some relatives here. Uh, how did that go? I completed my fellowship in 1983. I was there from 81 to 83. And so I moved in, in the summer of 83, I moved to Reno. And I'm trying to think about it. I think it was early on when I moved here. Um, I was asked by the ACLU to come do a debate with the Eagle Family Forum around the gay rodeo. I was pretty naive. It was held here in the old Jot Travis Union where they had the big auditorium. As I walked up 
there were there were cars everywhere. There were television stations everywhere. And um, here I'm new to town. I don't know anybody, but I'm the expert, right? And so I walked in. It was packed. And the debate was really about the gay rodeo and how is HIV transmitted. And we already knew how HIV was transmitted. That was really a clear message. It was it's really the science was already there. I was sort of blown away. I came from Los Angeles and I came to Reno and I was like, holy cow, these folks are a little biased. The next day, I was on the front page of the newspaper. A little picture. My grandmother calls me and she goes, talk to me about being on the front page of the newspaper. What is it that you were talking about? So my grandma and I had this great conversation. And I will tell you, every time I had a public engagement after that, my grandmother sat in the front row. But it launched me in Reno as a person who knew about HIV AIDS. And that was it. That just took off from there. I started seeing patients in my practice. I was seeing patients in the hospital, um, learning so many things as the whole scientific process came along, as drugs started coming out. We started our clinic in 1990 at the health department based on an early intervention model that I'd heard about at the uh, International AIDS Conference. And we got funded. From because the people at the health department were the best grant ever, and and that ultimately became Hopes HIV Outpatient Education and Service. That's how the Hopes came about. That's the acronym, and Hopes still has that funding for HIV/AIDS care. So I'm looking here at your resume for Dr. Trudy Larson. Uh, it is a long list of roles, positions, titles, a lot of educational pieces and certifications. And just some of the titles here, University of Nevada Medical School Assistant Professor, Associate Professor, Professor, Chair of Pediatrics at the Med School, Associate Dean of Primary Care Research, Assistant Chancellor for the University System Statewide, Associate Dean of the University of Nevada Med School, Director of the School of Community Health Sciences uh, starting in 2011. And now since the School of Community Health Sciences has become its own entity three years ago, you're the Dean. Uh, and those are just the highlights. So how do you explain all that? I thrive on creating. That's my happy place. Like to say, okay, what do we have? Where can we go? Let's get these ideas together. Let's see what we need. Let's move it forward. So that's where I like to be. I like to create. I'm not much of a maintainer. And so um, this, this change in positions and change in responsibilities has always been welcome for me. I got very involved in some international work in um, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. That was a five-year project working on curricular change for the medical school in Kyrgyzstan. It was fascinating. And then I was a consultant all while I'm a faculty member at the School of Medicine teaching and doing my practice in Ukraine and in Russia around HIV AIDS and training uh, their providers to care for children and adults with HIV AIDS. So now as the Dean of the School of Community Health Sciences, the role you've been in for the last three years, uh, you've told me that you and your team are now working to earn national accreditation as a full school of public health. What's the vision there? Why is that important? There are certain things that, um, that benefit being an accredited school of public health. One real practical thing is there's some grants that only come to schools of public health that are accredited. So that's one thing. We've worked really hard. This gives us a sense of prestige that we are now on par as an accredited school of public health with Yale and Harvard, just to give you an example, or Johns Hopkins, which is a huge school as well. We don't have the resources, but we have the same criteria 
that we have to fulfill as they do. Everybody believes this prestige is, is really automatic when you become accredited as a school of public health. Within the public health environment, people know that now. And, and that's a big deal. Having an accredited school of public health identified as a school of public health with a broad range of disciplines, a robust research portfolio, significantly engaged. We are more engaged with our community than a lot of accredited schools of public health. And part of it is because of our training center. Like we are, we are networked everywhere. You know, part of what we looked at is being the go-to place for public health. I mean, our health statistics are terrible. We have a long way to go. We want to follow them and make them better. And so that'll be a more national story that we'll be able to roll out, is how our programs directly helped improve our health statistics for the state. So as you've just mentioned, Nevada has had a huge challenge bringing up its health indicators year by year, and, and you're doing your part there with the school. But then COVID comes in and basically wreaks havoc with the medical system, puts a tremendous amount of pressure on your colleagues, the healthcare providers everywhere. Uh, how do you see that? So again, this is a challenge like none other. And, and there are some unforeseen circumstances here that I think um, will have longstanding impact. For the, from the medical profession, as it has been practiced in the past. Number one, telemedicine. It will be here to stay. It's the same philosophy as, as having education at demand. This is going to be having medicine at demand. Um, so it's here to stay. None of my colleagues were ever trained to do this. And so they've been trying to do it the best they can. It's hugely uncomfortable. So this whole learning curve around how to do this work in a different fashion has been really hard for them because they've had to do it while doing it or else risk losing their entire practice because patients were coming in. And so um, th there is a cascading effect here that's really hard. Many of the practices had to downsize because people were fearful to come into the clinics. Their long-term chronic medical conditions have worsened. And so now, um, you know, everybody's trying to catch up and there's still fearfulness for patients to come back and see them. I mean, these are long-standing relationships between patients and their doctors. It just is heartbreaking that, that physicians who've really dedicated themselves now uh, have to do so many things different and have to have to have such sick patients that they care for. Same with those with COVID. Like they've had to, to understand how to, uh, to do this medicine. And when they were in crisis standards of care, I don't know if you're familiar with what that means when you're in crisis standards of care. It means that you, are, you lack resources to operate as you usually do. And our hospitals were in crisis standards of care. And that meant that they had to look at allocation. They had to do rationing. So I have to tell you that I think my colleagues who are in the hospitals, in the clinics, on the front lines have been terribly challenged during this time. And so they deserve hazard pay. They need at least two years of paid therapy for PTSD. I mean, I'm just thinking like these are practical solutions. I so worry about how they're gonna come out of this. So let me set aside for a moment just the role of Trudy Larson, MD. And tell me what you're experiencing personally. What is your view on getting through this? There are so many unknowns. That, that's the other piece I think scares people is that we are, we're not sure. We're doing this for the first time right now. We're going through it. Uh, we need to give ourselves permission 
to not always have to be excellent at all the things we do. It's, we just need to do good enough. I had somebody the other day just simply say, you know what? We just need to be kind to each other. Seriously, we just need to be kind to each other and make it possible for people to tell their stories or to, you know, say how they're feeling and for people to say, geez, that's terrible. You have my sympathy. You know, how can I support you? Um, and instead of blame, because I see shaming and blaming are coming out all over the places and that is not a good dialogue. So it's unprecedented. We've never gone through this before. So before we wrap up here in just a moment, uh, real quickly, let me just ask you, uh, you've got so much on your plate and I know you enjoy your work, but are there things you'd like to do for fun or to recharge uh, from time to time? I love baseball. I cannot tell you how happy I am to be watching the Giants. I wish I was at the Aces Stadium cheering them on. I mean, I really like, I really like that. This is, I, this is my second husband. So I've actually gone through a divorce in the middle of all of this as well. And so um, he's gotten me into NASCAR racing. And so like we actually go to NASCAR races, seriously. There's some other experiences I want to have in my life. I love travel. I love it. And uh, we want to take our travel trailer and tour the United States with a book on history and go see it. And, you know, I have not read history for so many years, I've forgotten it all. And so to me, that's a rich field to re-explore. Uh, and I know you have some new additions to your family. I have grandkids now, two little girls. So that's a whole other thing. Like, how do I learn how to do that as well? So let me just say congratulations on that. That's a lot of fun. And uh, just congratulations on your entire career. Uh, there's no way to tell the entire journey of Trudy Larson, MD, in 40 minutes or so. We've touched on many things. Uh, as we wrap up, you have students, you have young people in their careers. What's some of the advice or the message uh, that you have found in your career that's had a lot of impact, a lot of joy, a lot of adventure, a lot of open and closed doors? Uh, what would you say to the, the younger people who might be listening right now? These opportunities... They came about because I said yes. And when I talked to classes about like, where are you going? I said, don't hesitate to say yes. If it just sort of goes, if there's a little thing that goes, ooh, that might be interesting. I think I'll do it. You know, that's me. Oh, that sounds interesting. I'll go think I, I have had the most interesting, you know, sort of career because I saw possibilities. Dr. Trudy Larson. Dean of the School of Community Health Sciences at the University of Nevada, Reno. I'm David Stipik with University Marketing Communications, and I hope you enjoyed this edition of Unpacked, the new podcast from Nevada Today. You can find out more about the School of Community Health Sciences online at unr.edu slash public hyphen health. And for daily and weekly news from the university, be sure to subscribe to the university's news source, Nevada Today at unr.edu slash Nevada Today. That's also where you can listen to the latest episodes or find Unpacked wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to like, share, and subscribe to the Unpacked podcast.